Because we have minds, we can't be what you wanted us to be. If we fail or succeed, it has to be our own doing. Intelligent life is too precious a thing to be led by the nose. Bridge to all decks, time to beam aboard a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve and Johnny. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morrison. I've been sending you a signal and you have not replied, and so I must destroy you. But wait, we show compassion to those who destroy us, which is why we are very, very good Star Trek. Joining us for our deep dive of the second to the last animated series episode, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth, is our good friend of the show, John Stephen Roca. Welcome back aboard Enterprise Incidents. Johnny. Thank you for having me aboard, although I'm a little confused. Why am I wearing a red shirt? What is this all about? What is this? What is going on here? Well, listen, uh, I think that How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth is definitely one of the finer episodes of the animated series. And it is so great to have you on to talk about this episode, John, because this is a special episode because it is How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth that won Star Trek, the animated series, its Emmy for Outstanding Entertainment Children's Program. And to this day, after 57 years, going back to 1966, the Emmy that the animated series got for Outstanding Children's Program remains the only Emmy that any Star Trek series ever got that was not like a production Emmy or a below-the-line or a crafts Emmy. So there is something to be said about that. It also won the 1975 Peabody Award. But I'm going to start with you, John. What did you think of How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth? It's really interesting to watch it now because I haven't watched it in a very, very long time. And I remember liking the episode as a kid when I watched it because the dragon, the name Kukulkan is something that a kid can absolutely gravitate to and try to understand. Plus, my parents are South American, so they're connected to Native American people and have for their for their regions there in Bolivia. So for me, there was a lot that spoke to me as a kid when I watched the episode. And the idea of a God questioning, I've given you things. Why aren't you more appreciative? You know, when you've got a a, a, a strong father or strong mother, you're going to hear those words. I've taught you all these things. Why don't you appreciate me more? So having that be an element of the episode, the episode just really struck me as a kid. Look, watching it now in 2023, I think there are some some fun things to explore and talk about, and then some things that are a little like, oh, this seems like there'd be a better way to approach this, a better way to approach this god-like uh, uh, creature it, it, that they do on, on the episode. So I did enjoy watching it. It was nice to hear the dulcet tones of Shatner mispronouncing Kugel Khan uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and finding out, that, which I didn't know back then, that James Doohan voiced, voiced four of the characters, including Kugel Khan, which I think he did a wonderful job voicing it over. So, yeah, it was a fun experience to rewatch it again in preparation for the show. Well, well, first of all, the the multiple voices uh, of, of James Doohan is something that has uh, irked our friend Steve Morris a little bit here and there. <laughs> but really? I, 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 I got to say, Steve, uh, John, uh, that that you're bringing up the relationship with your parents is is was it one of the motives, one of the reasons that co-writer Russell Bates wrote this episode? Because when he uh, sort of went off on his own thing, uh, he had to deal with 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 sort of like. Uh, like, why don't you appreciate me more from from his parents? And that was oh, wow. one of the, one of the many inspirations for this episode. But I am, of course, also very very curious to know what you, Steve Morris, thought thought of this episode. 
Well, we haven't had the best run of episodes lately on the animated series. And so this is by a huge step forward. This is a much, much stronger episode. It deals with classic, classic Star Trek themes. And it definitely uh, goes into an area that Star Trek hasn't gone into exactly before. And so I, I, I did really enjoy this one. Uh, this is the, another episode. Well, first, Steve, you're absolutely right. After uh, the practical Joker and uh, Albatross, uh, I think that this is definitely a return to form uh, for the animated series, even though it is a part of a short six episode second season. Uh, certainly, this is the second to the last episode of the animated series. Uh, I like this episode a lot. I didn't really remember a lot about it when I went back in to watch it. So the first things that struck out at me were certainly the fact that you have the first introduction of an Enterprise crew member who is Native American, which I thought was was fantastic, very par for the course for one of the reasons that Star Trek has been so great and has endured all this time. Uh, but also, I thought the episode started off very strong and was was reaching a peak, you know, around the second act, but it, it ended kind of on a whimper, like it didn't end as strong as it started. Uh, and that could just be another flaw because it is, uh, it, you know, without the credits, opening and closing credits, you're looking at like 22 minutes hmm. of, of story time. But the, the director, of course, was Bill Reed, who directed all six season two episodes. The production number for How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth is two Two zero two two, which makes it the twenty second animated series episode to go into production. The air date for this was October fifth, nineteen seventy four, and another reason why we're so happy to have you on, John, because that makes How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth the one hundredth episode of Star Trek to be broadcast. And that was the episode that won Star Trek a Peabody Award and an Emmy. So I think that is actually really, really cool. The writers are Russell Bates and David Wise. Bates, uh, his only other credits really as a writer was The Secrets of Isis. But he also acted in the 1981 cinematic classic, Freddy of the Jungle. (laughs) (laughs) which i am sure you know i I cannot wait when we're done i'm going to go right into the cinephiles archives to listen to your four-part four parts and that's like that's conservative for you guys to only do four parts on a movie like freddy of the jungle he also acted in another cinephiles classic 1983's Porky's two the next day. Oh, oh wow! Which I believe that was a five-part episode of the Files. As for David Wise, he first of all, in addition to writing many animated uh, episodes of, of shows like He Man and the Masters of the Universe, My Little Pony, The Transformers, Speed Racer, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, he also wrote the live-action episode of Battlestar Galactica called Space Vampire. Did you guys ever see this? I'm sure I did. I saw all the Battlestar Galactic. Yeah. Uh, uh, Well, this is Buck Rogers. Excuse me. Buck Rogers in the 20th century. Oh, Buck Rogers. Then I probably. uh, But the thing I remember the most about the Space Vampire episode of Buck Rogers is how insanely hot and sexy Erin Gray was after she was possessed by the vampire. Uh, uh, Erin Gray in that tight outfit that she wore in Buck Rogers. Somebody help me. Um, (laughs) But also, Dorothy Fontana had asked 
uh, Russell Bates to write an episode for the animated series, and he asked Wise to join him. And as Wise explains, we went up to Dorothy Fontana's office and pitched her the story, which was becoming painfully apparent to me from Dorothy's reaction. She was looking for Russell Bates to write from his experiences as a Native American, something that he could write uniquely himself. And Fontana always wanted to see a story about the little men from the stars that the Native Americans uh, note in their legends. Here's the other interesting thing. Russell Bates honored the memory of his close friend, and uh, he also had a professional uh, partnership as well, the late Gene Kuhn, Mm. who had passed away on July 8th, 1973. So- July 8th, 1973, as of this recording, is coming up next week. Mm. So next week on Saturday, July 8th, will be the 50th anniversary of the passing of Gene L. Kuhn, Mm. who, as we all know, everyone listening all knows, was a fundamental force in making the original Star Trek series even better than it was when Roddenberry created it. Uh, And he deliberately modeled... Uh, uh, Russell Bates, he deliberately modeled How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth after Who Mourns for Adonais, which was one of his favorite TOS episodes that was produced by Gene Kuhn. Mm. The first draft was submitted on uh, June 4th, 1974. Bates and Wise were present for the recorded dialogue, which was uh, attended by everybody except Shatner and uh, DeForest Kelly. Shatner was in New York at the time, which is why he mispronounced the name Cuckoo Khan the entire time. Cuckoo Khan. Khan! Yeah, Khan. <laughs> so it's so funny. So uh, obviously I already said that I, I like this episode much more than some of the last ones that we've watched. Hmm. And having listened, Scott, to your description, it's so obvious why. Because there was actual meaning that they were given to like a why they wanted to do what they did. You know, both in terms of bringing in a new perspective, which is an amazing thing. And, you know, it's something we're talking about all the time today. But in 1973, that idea of having someone come in and give a Native American perspective to an episode of Star Trek, that wasn't a thing that people were thinking. And then you add on the bonus of wanting to honor Gene Kuhn, like then, and that's why this episode is stronger, because it has clearly more emotional resonance for the people who are making the show. You know, I, I, absolutely. And the, the foresight for Fontana to say, hey, hang on a second. You know, you have this Native American background. Uh, we should write to that because that would be a unique thing that we've done on Star Trek. So uh, also, uh, obviously, that makes this uh, an episode that was considered for the first season. So when it did make the cut and they had already worked along pretty far into it. So that is why the episode is such a standout of the second season, because even though Fontana was long gone by then, from the animated series, she still had her work into it. And to, to honor, to honor Gene Kuhn, who had literally just passed away, uh, to honor somebody who never got the uh, recognition while he was alive. I mean, can you imagine like if, if Kuhn had lived for many, many years and he saw the popularity of Star Trek and, you know, maybe just maybe he would have had a hand in maybe writing one of the films. I mean, that that's a big, what if, but I agree with you completely, Steve on that. Yeah, and I think it follows the vibe of old school Star Trek, isn't it? To show a more progressive point of view, show these things like first, uh, you know, first interracial kiss on screen, see these kinds of things, seeing people from different cultures working together on the ship. I mean, that came up in the most recent episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds from last week, 
where Una was talking about, look, I know the Federation did this stuff to my people, but having them land on the planet, seeing different species working together in one Federation to bring peace to the galaxy motivated me to join them. So telling a story from a Native American point of view, I think, is just a, it goes right into the spirit of what Star Trek is really all about, is appreciating and uplifting other people's perspectives and exposing us to other people's perspectives. And doing a little bit of research for this, and I'm not Mance level research for this, but... <laughs> Uh, Russell apparently they were pitching so he was pitching so many days they kept rejecting 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 them that he went back home to Oklahoma like he left LA he drove he took a bus back home and that's where he was and then they called him and said hey we're gonna do your episode and he was on a bus that night and all the way back up to uh to, to LA uh and two days later they were doing the show which is insane to think about how things worked uh back then but he also said he wanted to write this as a repudiation of the arrogance that people had about how Native uh, the European mentality of Native Americans, it must have been aliens who came down and helped them build these things. There's no way these quote-unquote savages could have built these incredible uh, structures that they've built all through South America and other areas uh, there. And so it was his way of, in, in America, his way of saying like, no, look, the entire world then was exposed to this uh, alien and these gods so we were all essentially children uh from the uh, of this so I, I thought that was a really nice point of view to take on a story like this and, and that really does make this uh, an amazing companion piece to who mourns for adonais mm. because i know steve uh when we talked about that you know we we had a, a really lengthy discussion about Kirk's theory, you know, well, well, what if the Greek gods came to the Mediterranean? They would have been seen as gods. And, uh, you know, now you have this uh, this element where, like, the Mayan temples, like, you know, who built them? Where'd they come from? Uh, so that, even though it was deliberately supposed to be inspired by Who Mourns for Adonais, I think it's it's different enough where they're not retreating themes and uh, they're, they're still making an episode that very much stands on its own. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when this aired? Sure. Yes. This aired on October 5th, 1974. On October 1st, a classic film premiered. Not a big budget movie, not an Oscar winning movie, but an extremely influential and very violent movie that has inspired many sequels and is key to an entire genre. Any guesses? Johnny? It's not French Connection. It's so. not Enter the Dragon? Enter the Dragon? No, Ooh. no. It's far more violent than that. A lot of skin being ripped off of people. A lot of... Uh, oh, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre? The oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre premiere. Wow. Uh, yes, you're right. Lots of, that, that, lots of sequels was the giveaway there, Steve. But <laughs> thanks for um, that. Um, um, October 2nd, Hank Aaron hit his final home run. Oh. Number 733. That's pretty uh, good. <laughs> uh, on October 3rd, Frank Robinson became the first African-American manager in Major League Baseball. Uh, on the same day, Nancy Wilcox disappeared. And while you might not recognize that name, you will recognize the name of the man who disappeared her, and that is Ted Bundy. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And that was what was going on in the week before this premiered on October 5th, 1974. Shall we get into the episode? Let's get in. Uh, the first thing we have, of course, is a star date, Scott. Star date 6063.4. 
So, John, you know, this yeah. is the first episode of the animated series that you're joining us on. Yes, so, yes. So up to this point, you know, especially throughout the first season, my theory about the star dates worked perfectly. And the first number of the star date represents the year in space that the Enterprise is, is in during its five-year mission. So if the first number was a three, it's the third year of the five-year mission. First number yeah. was a five, it's the fifth year of the five-year mission. So all throughout the first season of the animated series, I'm looking at the star dates for the animated series and plugging them in to where they happened in relation to the star dates of the original series. And my theory worked out beautifully. <laughs> but then season two happened, and my theory is now out of the water because the star date here, 6063.4, means that this took place in the sixth year of the Enterprise five-year mission. Uh, no, it also means that this adventure took place between the last chronological episode of the original series, which is all our yesterdays and Star Trek, the motion picture. So, you know what? Uh, even though Fontana was very involved with the development of this uh, screenplay, uh, I still kind of say, well, you know, Roddenberry was gone. Fontana was gone. And maybe that's why they didn't take a closer look at the star date in this case. Well, isn't this, aren't they close to earth in this episode? So are they almost home? And then they have like this thing to deal with before they almost get there. So maybe this is on the tail end of the five-year mission. I like this theory so that it was just, we just clicked over to year six. So they're heading home to end the five-year mission. Right. And that's why the, I think this, you've made this whole thing work, John. John, I mean, this, this <laughs> is why you just justified your existence. <laughs> wow. Finally, it only took me so many years to do it. But yeah, I mean, I, this makes sense, right? Because I mean, I, th there's no way they would be on time after all those things they went through Fair on this five-year mission. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't it kind of bleed over a little bit and just as they're about to get to Earth? And you know, Kirk, Kirk is always up for one more mission before he has to dock the ship. So there's no way he wouldn't have uh, been uh, lured in to do, to do this uh, to figure out what's going on here. So, yeah. Look, he's not rushing to return the Enterprise. Hell Definitely. No. Yeah, he's, yeah. Like, he's slow rolling that one. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, it's he funny. He's not ready to give up uh, his ship. <laughs> it, it, it's funny, Scott, that you mentioned motion picture because, of course, while there are absolute connections to who moans far and I, we also have, you know, V'ger and Star Trek four things because Star Trek four is a probe has come to earth and we're trying to figure out what the deal is. And we head off to find out what that is. And this is, you know, similar stuff, which is that a probe has come to earth and it destroyed itself. But so we're backtracking its trail essentially yeah. to try to figure out what happened, happened. And as they're doing this, the trail is getting fainter. So Kirk gives his helmsman a order to reduce speed to warp factor two. And the helmsman, he calls Mr. Walking Bear. Ensign Walking Bear, voiced by James Dewan. And even though, look, Steve, I agree with you, it got a, ridicul a little ridiculous sometimes to have James Dewan voicing like, you know, all 428 members of the of the Enterprise crew. Yeah. <laughs> but in this case, I do think that Dewan really differentiated between the, the substantial characters that he had to do for this episode, including Ensign Walking Bear and John, as you pointed out, Coco Khan. He's also Arix. And of course, he is Chief Engineer Montgomery Sky. And I think maybe part of the reason for that could have been because, uh, like I mentioned before, other than the Forrest Kelly and William Shatner, uh, everyone was there. Everyone was present for the recording of their dialogue, including the two writers so uh, and and even I have to say, even though Shatner was elsewhere, he was actually in New York 
Uh, I feel like Shatner's vocal performance during season two is much more inspired than much of season one. I think he just got the hang of doing animation. Oh, well, that might be it. Sure. And their sensors are saying there's some kind of vessels at extreme range. We're heading towards it. We say yellow alert and see the console blink red. Which is one of those many things in the animated series. We can't identify the ship. It's really big. It's got an unorthodox design. And as we're talking about that, suddenly we get hit by something and we shake and we lose speed. All our engines are still in full thrust, but it's just like we're ramming into a wall of clay. I don't know if the ship can take the strain. Now that's what we love to hear from Scotty in a Star Trek episode, but it's live action or animated. <laughs> um, I like the little details now that we're seeing the nacelles stop when we order a stop, like things that you couldn't really do in the original series that we're now doing in animation. And what we find out is they're encased in a force field and that it's not just like a, a linear shield, like a flat wall in front of them, but they are trapped in a force field globe. The idea of a force field around the Enterprise, I mean, we've certainly seen the Enterprise held by a giant hand, which was a force field because it was energy. It was not living matter in humorans uh, for Adonis. And we also had the Enterprise enveloped by a force field of sorts in Cat's Paw, when Sylvia used her magic to envelop the Enterprise, preventing anybody from beaming down or communications from breaking through. Another Star Trek trope, but, you know, it's one that still works. <laughs> um, and then we finally see a image of the ship. What do you think of this design? John, you go first on that. I, I like the design. And again, doing a little bit of research, um, uh, I think it was Russell apparently wanted it to be in the shape of the dragon and it was uh, Roddenberry who apparently he uh recorded a cassette of notes <laughs> on the episode and one of the notes I think it was only two notes they mentioned in some of the th research I did one of the notes was we don't want the ship to be the dragon because that's some that's some Flash Gordon stuff where you see Vikings rowing their spaceship it, it would not work so they came up with an alternate design and I like the alternate design and yet they were able to use like the cloaking device and show the dragon later on. So for an initial look of a ship, it's a pretty threatening ship. So I like the design that they landed on here to kind of um, appease Roddenberry, but also uh, let Russell have his say about the look of it. Yeah. Well, first of all, that that's absolutely true. Uh, uh, you know, Roddenberry was also because this was done for season one when Roddenberry was involved. Uh, he only had a couple of notes and this was one of them. Uh, but also... The writer, uh, well, co-writer, uh, Russell Bates, he had submitted a pitch for a TOS script for the original series that was never used called The Patient Parasites. And that original series script featured the character of Walking Bear. But in that original series script, that unproduced script, Walking Bear was a character not, not nearly as prominent and actually part of the plot like he is with the animated episode that we are talking about today. Hmm. I was just thinking like what a big deal the character of walking bear is on an, on a Saturday morning cartoon, yeah. you know, yeah. like th this is a, this is a, this is a thing, a, a sign of some things to come. And it must've been pretty special for a kid to be watching it, who was native American mm -hmm. and see this character on the, on the bridge of the enterprise. That's absolutely true. And you know, like, you know, when we talked about uh, the paradise syndrome, uh, you know, which is obviously, you know, Native American inspired. And, but, you know, this, the difference here is that 
that this is a Native American who is a part of the Enterprise crew yeah. and a part of the bridge crew filling in for Sulu, who is completely absent from this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Much to Shatner's joy, I imagine. <laughs> so we, we, we try to do some evasive maneuvers, but it's really hard to do evasive maneuvers when you're trapped in a little ball. And so that's not going to work. Apparently, the weapons from this ship can fire through that force globe but we can't fire out from it. And then it does turn into this dragon. So by the way, I love the, we're going to listen to Roddenberry's notes, but we're going to do it in a way that the, that we can get what we want at the yeah. same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, that is something you have to do with executives all the time. Well, <laughs> also the animation here, uh, you know, now that I've been watching, rewatching animated Star Trek every week for the purposes of the of this voyage through the animated series on enterprise incidents I, you know john i've talked before about how so many of these animated episodes i mean i know i saw them but yeah. there were oh, there yeah. were some that i just forgot completely forgot about them and i do remember i do remember this one yeah. but when i was doing the rewatch just because i'm doing it all at once and i'm like looking wow the animation in this episode looks a little different it looks a little more inspired yeah. And the reason for that is because at Filmation, there were some Japanese animators who worked on this particular episode because they were working on a separate feature at Filmation, and they were contractually bound to work a specific period of time for Filmation. So they threw in some work for this episode. And I think that's, you know, I can't confirm it, you know, because certainly, you know, Robert Klein did a lot of the, a lot of the artwork in the storyboards, but, uh, and we shared our storyboard that was, uh, you know, Bill Reed shared the storyboard from this when we were talking about, uh, what was that, uh, Ben, uh, oh, shared. Yeah. but, uh, I think the animation for Kuku Khan's ship looks pretty different. It just doesn't feel like it was done by the same animators who did the animated series. And as we see this uh, new version of the ship, Walking Bear says, I recognize it. Kukulkan. And then we hear the voice. And so we just heard Jimmy Dewan's voice for Walking Bear. And now we hear another version of his voice, which I agree, John. I think he does these voices really well. Yeah, yeah. I was angered because I believed you had forgotten me. But one in your midst knows my name. You will be given one chance to succeed where your ancestors failed. Fail me again, and all of your kind shall perish. That sounds a little like, uh, you know, Sargon. Yeah. Yeah, the way he's talking about perishing. So we find out that Walking Bear is a Kamachi. So Russell Bates is a Kiowa. Yeah. But he made Walking Bear a Kamachi because he thought, you know what? The people watching on Saturday morning, especially kids, are probably going to know more about Kamachi. So he he made Walking Bear a Kamachi. That was his reasoning. And and Walking Bear is also cl clearly a scholar of a whole bunch of mythologies, histories of different people all around the world because he recognizes this as a god in the Mayan and Aztec legends. Yeah. Library computer confirms that Ensign Walking Bear is correct. The Mayas had a legend of a winged serpent god who came from the skies bringing knowledge. Such legends were not uncommon among Earth's peoples, Captain. Then we could be dealing with the basis of all those legends. A space traveler who visited Earth in primitive times. And as they're talking about this, we kind of cut down to the sickbay where 
Uh, McCoy is treating a yeoman and then he disappears and then Scotty disappears. Kirk disappears and Walking Bear. And so Spock is left alone on the Enterprise. We, you know, we, we've seen before uh, how, you know, Kirk ha- has a tendency to disappear from from the bridge of the Enterprise, obviously, in uh, Squire Gothos, but also the time trap. So it's just a, a, a good trope, you know, let's uh, snag the captain off the bridge of his own ship. We can't go past these scenes without mentioning um, McCoy's rather brusque bedside manner. <laughs> And he's like, you don't deserve it, but you're going to get a few days off. It's like, hey, no, no, you know what I'm saying? And so it's a little, and then we're going to get to a Spock Uhura interaction that really was a little weird. So, you know, John, uh, that's, I'm glad you brought up the McCoy bedside manner because, you know, he's pretty tough. Like yeah. I remember, remember in the enemy within when Fisher uh, fell off the rock and he beamed back up, causing a whole problem with the transporter room. Uh, so McCoy is treating his hand. And McCoy says to Fisher, he goes back to duty status, Fisher, I have no sympathy for clumsiness. So this episode, and we're going to see this uh, yeah. throughout the course of the episode, really feels like it is is an extension of the original series with little things like that. Yeah. And look, which Steve and I are, are in the midst of Bridge on the River Kwai as we're recording this. And I think Nicholson and McCoy would get along after Nicholson, Colonel Nicholson has left the, uh, the oven because <laughs> he is also pretty hard on these injured people. Uh, trying to get them to work on the bridge. So, yeah. First ever connection between Star Trek, the animated series and the bridge on the river Kwai. Um, the, uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I hadn't, I hadn't put any meaning to that little interaction with Kirk and this yeoman who, by the way, is a male yeoman, which I don't know that we'd ever seen a male yeoman oh, in yeah. the original series. They were always female. That's right. But, but the, the thing that occurs to me is, what is this episode about? This is an episode about parents and their children mm. and children being ungrateful to their parents. And maybe McCoy here is being the tough parent, you know? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Excellent point there, Mr. Morris. We cut to this giant room, which is obviously aboard the other ship. And we're with uh, McCoy and Walking Bear, Kirk and uh, Scotty. Now I will show you the seeds that I have sown before. Learn from them. Find their purpose if you can. Only then will I appear before you. And all these buildings appear, including this beautiful pyramid. And the buildings all look like they're sort of from different cultures. I've never seen anything so beautiful. Where did it come from? Let's find out. And that is the end of Act One. So this episode is obviously inspired by many things. And Wise... Uh, Bates's co-writer was inspired by the book Chariots of the Gods, which oh, proposed, yeah. yeah, which proposed that Earth legends of the past were actually tales of aliens from outer space. Again, another correlation to the second season episode Who Moons for Outer Nice from the original series. So we come back in Act Two. Mr. Spock, shouldn't we be trying to find out what became of the captain and the others? Lieutenant Uhura, you are supposed to be monitoring the alien vessel. Our first priority is to free the Enterprise and ourselves. Return to your duties. What's that all about? And from, again, doing just a little bit of research here, apparently they had wrote a scratch line for Uhura to come back at him and say, you know, something like, you pointy-eared fool. And oh, jeez. Yeah, that's what he was. And Nichelle Nichols, apparently in the recording session, read the line in her mind. And said to the guys, like, wait a minute, do you want me to say this line? And 
they're like, no, 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 forget the, forget you ever saw that line. Scratch it out. We were supposed to take it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. They, they couldn't come up with any kind of retort because apparently their intention in the setup here, which sadly didn't come to fruition, was for Spock to snap at her. And because he had done this a few times in the original series, she was going to get the last word because this was the second to last animated episode. So they were going to give her the final say because, I mean, they had no idea they were going to make films. and the, So they were going to give her the final say over Spock and then they could never come up with something to come back at him with. So unfortunately we're left with Spock kind of uh, shutting down Hura in a rude way in this moment. And, and it feel as a result of that, uh, John, it feels yeah. like the scene is incomplete. Yeah. Right. Because, yeah. you know, Spock says, you know, mind your, mind your communications, you know, or, or, you know, get back to work and, you know, do what you're supposed to do. And, yeah. and she just, okay, this does it, you know, I mean, there, there should have been some kind of like yeah. response to be like, you know, hey, back off, mister. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and it makes Spock's initial being so short with her just seems so, it, it stands out far more because she yeah. doesn't have a response. Right. Yeah, it's funny. There, there's a thing that happens when you're taking notes, just, you know, is that someone will give you a note about a line and you'll kind of go, well, I can't take that line out because it's connected to these three other things. Yeah. But they don't quite get that. And so then you have to take the line out and then you're left with these other things that don't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a it's a it's a bummer because it's a weird moment. Yeah. Um, back on Kukulkan ship, we're looking around and we see that oh, some things look Egyptian, some things looks Chinese. This city is one gigantic riddle. Keep alert. I really like this setup. Yeah, I, the idea good. that we have a riddle to solve. This and then Walking Bear gives us some more information. He says, Kukulkan gave the Mayas a remarkably accurate calendar. He told them to build a city according to its cycles. On the date the city was finished, Kukulkan was supposed to return. The Mayas built their city and waited. Kukulkan never appeared. You know, this is something that when I was doing this rewatch, you know, we just we just covered an episode, Bem, which I didn't think it would be possible, like just like you pointed out, Steve, to tie the animated Star Trek to Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, I didn't right. think it would be possible to tie the animated Star Trek to 2001 A Space Odyssey. But in BEM, you have a superior intelligence that is guiding the evolution of a species. And that is what the monolith does in 2001. Now, there was, you know, we don't really know a lot about the alien entity in BEM that does this, uh, but we didn't need to. But in this, we're finding so much about Kukulkan, which in, you know, in his own way was testing humanity. Like if you if you figure this out with the temple. Then yeah. I will come back and guide you. If you don't, then well, you're on your own. But they, the humanity, wasn't able to do it back in the day. But you know, Kirk and his landing party, uh, his uh, his uh, kidnapped landing party, rather, is able to figure it out. Yeah, it, it's so funny because I think one of the big thing that has come out of doing the animated series with you, Scott, is that it really came from Bem and now this, which is now I really have a much better sense of. Oh, there are all these gods or or, or semi gods mm-hmm. in the Star Trek universe because we've had Apollo, we had and, and that they're you know Sargon and all these other places. And I think we can can we definitively say that multiple different gods, including like the the magic of Magus too, yeah. like v, you know other species came to Earth at various times 
and moved us forward technologically or spiritually or intellectually in some various ways, and that they're doing that at all sorts of other planets all around the galaxy. Can we can we say that definitively now? Uh, I would say, especially after you know making it so succinct like you did, Steve, I would say that that uh, is it, it absolutely on point. You know, what do you think of that, John? Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Absolutely, sure. It's interesting that a very science fiction show that loves science has a very fantasy element to it in its history, which is these semi gods traveling around with powers that way beyond what we understand, mm-hmm. you know, 100% for sure. Um, and what we realize, and I, and I like all everything that they're doing is that basically, okay, all of these civilizations were given this information and they all kind of failed. If no one on earth built this city exactly right, then that's why Kuklakan never came back. The entire city is our key. Kuklakan said he would appear only when we learned its purpose. Then there has to be some sort of signaling device here. We realize the pyramid is at the center of everything. So Kirk goes, I'm going to the top of the pyramid. You guys check everything else out. I, I like the way this is drawn, the animation of Kirk yeah. climbing up the tower. I think it all looks really cool. Yeah. The, again, the animation does stand out. I mean, we've always, you know, I, I, I John, I've tended to grade the animated series on a curve because, <laughs> uh, A, because of the budget, but also because, you know, Star Trek, the animated series was one of many animated shows that Filmation was working on. And, yeah. and you know, the, there's, there's time and there's only so much that they can do. So I, I was able to give the shortcomings of the animated series a pass when it came to the animation. But I'll, I'm with you, Steve, on this. I, I think the animation in, in this particular scene and the episode overall is actually very strong. Yeah, you have to put it in the context of when it came out, right? So to me, it looks vibrant. To me, it looks really interesting for what we were getting in 1973, for God's sake. So sure. to me, it feels... Um, like the animators, the Japanese animators kind of stepped up to really highlight what the story was trying to show you. And it wouldn't make any sense if you had a, a god or pseudo god who um, is telling Kirk and his crew that he brought all these things to human beings um, and not have this uh, beautiful, wonderful, incredible looking city. And, and then when we get to the animals, uniquely different designs and styles that stand out so it just kind of made sense they understood the assignment in a way and tried to highlight that as they were doing the animation i think so kirk has made it to the top and while he's done that some of the guys down below have found these i'll say obelisks at each (laughs) of the corners of the pyramid and they are topped with a dragon's head that can be turned and, and kirk orders them to turn it and aim it at the top of the pyramid which they do and the sun hits it, and suddenly a beam shoots up to the top of the pyramid. We go, oh, there's one of these at each corner. Let's aim them all at the top of the pyramid, which which they do. And I'll tell you what it reminded me of is I suddenly went, this is like Indiana Jones mm. with the with the staff of Raw in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you got to put it in the right place for the sun to shine through and tell you the location of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, well, let's just make sure the staff isn't too big, or you're going to be digging in the wrong place. Yep. <laughs> well, you have to take away two Kadam. I mean, that's <laughs> obviously obviously. Um, Come on, this is probably them. You know, aiming all those things and shooting the light up to the top to create the signal. This is some of the coolest animation we've seen in a while, I think, of the anime series. Some good, some good yell acting from uh, Shatner there as well. Scotty! <laughs> <laughs> After scores of centuries, my design has been fulfilled. Behold me as I am. 
Kukulkan. I think Kukukan looks pretty cool. This is the serpent. I mean, he's literally the the serpent. Um, but in this well, case, cool, uh, cool is part of his name. He's cool, named yeah. Cool Kukan. I mean, well, and Khan is also part of his name. So I'd be a little worried <laughs> about that. Uh, but uh, this is a deity that uh, we have seen before. That in terms of he's lonely. You know, not only was yeah. Apollo lonely looking to be worshipped in Humor to Adonais. But, you know, when we did our deep dive of the animated series episode, one of our planets is missing. There was a uh, an alien presence that was lonely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, loneliness is a, is a big factor in powerful beings who uh, want to be worshipped, it seems like. Yeah. I just went, oh, Apollo, Kukulkan, some of these, they're empty nesters. That's what they are, is that they had their kids, and then their kids aren't that interested in them anymore, and have headed off, and they're like, hey, wait a minute, we were supposed to hang out. Like, what's the deal? Yeah, we don't need you anymore. Yeah. And then this, I find this uh, speech very strange, because then Kukulkan challenges them to take out their weapons, which they don't have any, and he goes, Where are your weapons of destruction? Use them on me if you dare. We have no weapons, and if we did, we would use them only with reason. Where is your hate? You hate me, do you not? And they're like, dude, we don't hate you. Like, we just fed you. <laughs> what is what is going on, dude? <laughs> what is, what like, is man, this? Let's bring down the hostility a little yeah. bit. Come on. Yeah. He says, well, you fired on me. He's like, well, you fired on us first. <laughs> you put us, remember you put us in that ball? Like, come on. I am your master. I may do with you as I will. Do you think we belong to you? Oh, Scotty, quiet. Scotty didn't talk. Like, why why are you scolding him? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) You say that we forgot you. How can you expect us to regard you as a deity if we don't remember you? What does God need with a starship? I just want to know. Yeah. What does God need with a starship? One of the best (laughs) lines in one of the worst movies. (laughs) I wish Kirk would go like, look, you're the 12th God I've met. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I've been down this road before. Yeah. You know, you know you're know, you not going to pull the wool over my eyes. Nice try, Lao shit. I mean, my best friend became a God and I had to kill him. <laughs> Good point. And then he wants to show, he says, if you don't know me, it is my task to teach you. And he transports them to a giant zoo where... All sorts of animals are being kept in like an illusion of their own reality, which is also fairly familiar for Star Trek. And and why would that be, Steve? (laughs) I just feel like we're visiting a cage or a menagerie of some kind. (laughs) We're missing his Telosians. But yes, you have uh, different species in different cages. Uh, But uh, the thing is, they they don't know that they're in cages is what Cuckoo Khan says. Uh, um, So they don't know that they're that they're captive and they're. They're they're content the way the way they are. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but I guess there it is. Uh, I here's what I think, and I have no way of knowing. I think this was a note from an executive that said, "Look, we're going to show these to little kids on Saturday morning cartoons, and they're going to feel really bad for these animals who are all in these little cages. So let's tell them something of why the animals are happy." <laughs> and, and the animals look kind of cutesy like there's one there's one animal one alien that has three eyes and the eyes keep doing like googly googly moves uh maybe to kind of maybe you're right because it does feel like a sort of like sort of kid like thing to put into an otherwise very mature story yeah 
Um, and that's what, and they kind of go, oh, so the city that you built that we were just in, that was like supposed to be our natural environment, but that's, that's not really how we live. I, I found that a little bit confusing. Even so, I would hardly call your city our natural environment. It was meant to be. That city and all else I taught to your ancestors, but they became evil. And so he came to Earth to try to teach them peaceful ways. Right. And then he left and they didn't go in, from his opinion, in a peaceful uh, direction. They all became warriors. But Walking Bear says, look, we only work to create peace. So, you know, Walking Bear is a very, very big presence. And he's, you know, using his heritage to kind of assure Cuckoo Khan, like, and this is something else that, that Kirk has said many times, you know, where kind of if you want to tie it into a taste of Armageddon, like, you know, yeah, we're, we're savages, but we're not going to kill today. We want to be in peace. Yeah. yeah. By, by the way, if someone's, if someone's, uh, it said on their resume, or I did an interview for a job, and their line was, "Look, I'm a killer, but I'm not going to kill today." I'd be like, "You know what? I'm not hiring you." <laughs> <laughs> it seems a little dangerous. It shouldn't be just like every day you just choosing not to kill. Yeah, that's odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of dangerous, uh, one of the animals we get to meet is a Capellan power cat, and they're like, "How the hell did you get this thing? This thing's super dangerous." Well, what's interesting is that it is McCoy who recognizes mm. the Capellan power cat yeah, yeah. because this Capellan power cat came from the planet Capella 4, which is where McCoy was stationed before the events of Friday's child. Oh. And I'm one, yeah, so, so I'm like, wait, McCoy, of course McCoy recognizes a, a Capellan yeah. power cat. He was on Capella 4 for months, but also this episode was clearly overseen by Dorothy Fontana, and here you have a Capellan power cat from Capella 4, and Dorothy Fontana wrote Friday's Child. So a lot of synergy going on there. That's really cool, and I didn't pick up on that, and I think that's really, really neat. You still are children to me, to be led and shown how to live. But if children are made totally dependent on the teachers, they will never be anything but children. Very Kirk thing to say. Here we have like a, a real theme going on of parents and children. And do you do what you see, do what your parents say to fulfill their expectations of you? Or do you go their own way? And is that a betrayal? And I think all of that is really interesting. Yep, I agree. You know who doesn't find it interesting is Cuckoo Khan. <laughs> He's like, Enough! This is useless. Despite what I have shown you, you still cling to your disobedient ways. My dream is ending, and all of you are to blame. And it goes to attack them, and they scatter, and that is the end of Act 3. Act 2. And that is the end of Act 2. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we're back in Act 3, and we're on the bridge, and Spock has come up with a plan, which is basically that this thing is only elastic up to a point. If we can push in one way with our tractor beams, and pull in another way with our, our warp drives, we can break through. Okay, I got to say, this is very, very Spock. This is very cool that that they are really leaning into the way that Spock was established in the original series. Mm. Again, you know, if you look at Who Mourns for Adonais, again, I know I keep, I keep going back to that episode because clearly this episode was meant oh, yeah. to be inspired by it, but... You know, I just like it was Spock who came up with the the way to break through 
Apollo's hand, so to speak, to be able to communicate with Captain Kirk and fire their phasers on Apollo's temple. But you know, Spock's reasoning is very Spock-like. Uh, I would have thought of that. And this is an animated series for Saturday morning. And like kids watching must go like, wow, that Spock is really smart. <laughs> well, and it also points out like, you know, we were complaining in our last episode, Albatross, about these things where like they open up the hangar doors and the ship flies in. And why do they do that? And it's all just like, wait, I don't get it. What this doesn't really make sense. This totally makes sense. This is the kind of thing where it's like, you know, and I don't have to know how tractor beams or warp drives work in order to understand like, oh, it's not that a lot. I mean, this is a clear bit of good science fiction Star Trek writing. 100%. Yes. Of course, Kukulkan is not pleased that the Enterprise is broken out. It is ready to destroy it. I like, by the way, the way they do the monitor of the Enterprise on Kukulkan's ship, that it's sort of floating in that oval in space. Yeah. I think it looks really cool. Yeah. The Enterprise broke free. Then we've got to distract them and give Spock some time. And you know what it reminded me of is this reminded me of Doomsday Machine, which is that Spock is now attacking a ship that's more powerful than him, so they have to distract Kukulkan so Kirk is to, to, to save Spock. You know what I mean? There's that back and forth. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Bones, what would happen if we pulled the cables on some of these cages? And I like McCoy's response. Well, most of the animals would probably just lay there. <laughs> uh, but they, they they do that, including the Capellan Power Cat, which seems like a dangerous thing to do because it wakes up, immediately shatters the cage and charges them. So this is getting kind of scary. Irrational savages, see what you have done. <laughs> the, because the Enterprise has been firing on Kukulkan's ship, he doesn't have the power to control these animals. Jim. If that's true, we're all in trouble. And McCoy fills a hypo with tranquilizers, and Kirk runs and jumps on top of the cat, the big cat, gets him with the hypo before getting knocked down. And I like that the cute little power cat starts to lick his paws. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. like a big kitten. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is where, like, like again, the setup in the first act. And the peak in the second act, I'm, I just feel like this is this act is kind of where it loses its steam. Like mm. I just, I just wish that that the character of Kukulkan was a more dynamic and complex character because he's certainly set up to be that way. And like, what does he, what does he want? What is his motive at this point? Like, what is he doing? What does he want with the Enterprise? What does he want with the uh, with the uh, the crew members that are that are in his on on the planet now? Like, what's his motive? What's his end game? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it, it's the the problem because and I think this is an animated episode that actually called out for a 45 minute episode or 42 minutes, episode, right? Where we could have gotten a little bit more. And so we would have had more of um interesting philosophical discussion between Kirk and Kuko Khan, because apparently Scotty and Bones can't weigh in on this. Uh Kirk and Kuko Khan going back and forth about this whole situation. Um, and what is the overall goal or the overall point of this, and then calling each other out on their points of views, I think that would have been a much more satisfying situation uh, to end the film. Plus uh, the end the episode on plus the idea that he somehow can't control the cats, the cat uh, the creatures and defend the ship or, and go after the enterprise. When you're a God, that seems like a really limited amount of power that you have as a God that can supposedly uh, travail the entire universe and show up whenever it wants to on these planets. You know, I saw saw someone in uh, some of the review, one of the reviews that I thought was hilarious. Someone said, 
he's like an ex he's like an angry ex-boyfriend that like gave you gave all these people his numbers but they got, didn't quite get the numbers wrong and so he's like sitting all the way on the other side of the universe or galaxy going like uh, how come they won't text me what's going on <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and then should i text them back should i not text them or should i text them or should i not no i'm not going to text them they're going to text me i know they are and then finally getting frustrated about it and showing up at your work and that's what it feels like that a little bit with kuko khan which i think is uh, comes um uh comes through really powerfully in this third act scott as you said the little bit of the shortcomings in that character yeah. there was more that could have been done here that i think would have been interesting you put it you put it in a very relatable way my friend <laughs> <laughs> it's funny i hadn't thought about it but both of you are totally right like the, it's it's really they didn't really figure out what kuko khan wants yeah because yeah, yeah. And, and so well, like be praise steve it can't that seems so simplistic well, for a but, god but, you, but even that it's like well if it's you know because like apollo wants you to go back to being my worshipers and they basically they prove like we can't be that for you anymore and he realizes oh i guess i have to this dream's not going to work and i have to go spread myself out and whatever happens to him at the end and this it's like well i wanted you to decipher my clue yeah well they did decipher your clue yeah so that so that doesn't seem to be the problem and then it's sort of well, you're so warlike and violent, which doesn't really ring true to me if he was observing the Federation when it came to Earth. Like, I don't know if I feel that. And it's like, well, then it should be that they have to prove that they're not warlike and violent. But that's not really what's going on here. And so, yeah, I think it really goes into like, and, and by the way, and I do love the image of him just sitting on the other side of the galaxy going, <laughs> man, why, why did they text? Why don't he text yeah, me? Right. Why yeah. did he call me? <laughs> you think of us as being small creatures like this one. Are we really that inferior to you? No, but the violence of your kind surpasses even that of the power cat. And this is where I go, I don't feel like that rings true, you know? Yeah, yeah I don't either. <laughs> and this is where we go back to this idea of the parent and the child. Because we have minds, we can't be what you wanted us to be. If we fail or succeed, it has to be our own doing. Intelligent life is too precious a thing to be led by the nose. Mm. You know, I, I just think this is where. So, of course, it's it's Kirk who tries to reason with Kuku Khan. It's Kirk who tries to to be yeah. like, hey, you know, we're human. You know, we're we're going to make mistakes, and we will learn from them. We are not children anymore. Uh, but also, this kind of goes back to what I think Star Trek has really been about all along was the striving for the perfection of yeah. humanity. And the key word is striving. Because you're never going to get there, you know, if, uh, you know, Roddenberry envisioned Star Trek in the 60s, you know, 23rd century, you know, we're not going to be perfect and everything's going to be great. We're still going to be making problems and making mistakes and we're going to still learn from them. And that's what Kirk is saying. If we fail or succeed, it has to be of our own doing. Yeah. And I, I like also that they do kind of thank him. You are my children. I hoped I could teach you. Helped you. You did long ago when it was needed most. So they do say, like, we're grateful for how you helped, but we're children then, and now we're grown-ups, and we have to go our own way. And he also says, he also says basically the same thing he says to Apollo uh at the end of Humor Shadonias. I mean, the ending, I think, for How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth is more uplifting mm. than uh the downbeat ending of Adonias. But Kirk is basically saying to Kuku Khan what he said to Apollo, we've outgrown you. And yeah. that's okay. Um, which is a pretty sophisticated message. Mm -hmm. And he says, okay, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> and <laughs> which you're right. It is not as dramatic as the end of Adonai's. Mm -hmm. It's later on. 
And we hear all, you know, they talk about all the different legends that a dragon like this was part of, where Kukulkan must have uh, had an influence. But not quite a god, just an old, lonely being who wanted to help others. Which is kind of sad. It is sad. It is sad. But then again, so was the ending of uh, of, of Apollo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't... I don't want to get too deep, right? Because I know this is about the animated series and everything. Oh, get deep, man. That's what we do here on Enterprise Incidents. Cool. If you'll indulge me, I think this is a – and I don't know if this is Russell's intention. I actually think this isn't probably Russell's intention. But this is a fascinating, subversive approach to religion. This idea that we have and we're told, and especially nowadays we've seen some of the more – and I'm going to say this, and if you want to edit it out, you can, Steve – some of the more Christian Taliban approaches to religion where you all have to get on your knees and worship God every day, 24 seven. Thank God that you even exist and all this kind of stuff, as opposed to us evolving past the idea of needing to worship religion. We can appreciate, I'm a believer in God and Jesus Christ. I believe in them, but I don't have to fall on my knees all the time or whip myself and these kinds of things. And I think the Native American approach to gods was out of respect. Their worship was out of respect rather than duty and trying to make you feel terrible about the fact that you haven't prayed today or anything. The guilt that is always accompanying a lot of religion, the guilt that you, sh- you should feel shame for even existing, you know, these kinds of things. And I think what Kirk is saying at the end, and listen, again, I don't think necessarily this was Russell's point of view on this. And maybe it was, I don't know. But Kirk saying, like, we've outgrown you is in essence him saying, like, we've moved past the archaic approaches of the past generations of uh, how we approach religion. We we should appreciate God, appreciate whoever we worship and their their role in our lives. But this idea of needing to be the idea that is pushed by certain members uh, for their own benefit of a God that needs to constantly be praised is reflective of how they want to be praised in their own lives, right? It's a male, religion is usually a male-dominated thing, and a lot of insecure uh, men become in charge of religion, and they have to construct this situation where their followers, and especially their female followers, because most of them are usually straight, or cis, uh, want to be worshipped. So therefore, God must be the same thing, and that's what I'm preaching to you. So to me, it, it the episode in a way, it, even though it's a bit awkward and clumsy at the end here, is Kirk saying, like, we've outgrown you, we've outgrown that old archaic way of thinking of religion, and you've got to leave us alone so that we can find our way to appreciate your role in our world and also uh, construct our own world without necessarily needing to do these kinds of things. So again, I, maybe I too deep. Maybe I'm reading way too much into it, but I kind of think there was a little bit of subversiveness in this uh, script. So, well, first of all, that's a beautifully, beautifully put, John. And I don't think you can really call yourself someone who really appreciates Star Trek without going deep, because that is what Star Trek wanting you to do, and that is what made Star Trek so groundbreaking from 66, because no other science fiction series, at least maybe other than The Twilight Zone, you know, ever challenged its viewers to, to go there like you just did. Hmm. And 
And going from a Humans for Adonai is to how sharper than a serpent's tooth, because it does cover similar themes, lonely gods looking to be worshipped, Kirk saying, hey, you know, yeah, uh, we, we don't need you anymore, but thanks for everything you did to help us get to the point where we could go out on our own and live our lives and we don't have to listen to our parents anymore. Yeah. I think generally speaking, you know, I'm not, I am not religious really, but I am spiritual uh, you know, I am Jewish, but I am spiritual. I believe in something, you know, out there that is kind of like, you know, calling the shots. I'm not sure what it is. Um, it might be Gary Mitchell. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, but, uh, I think that over the course of, of human history, yeah. there has been a gradual shift away from the need to worship, and certainly there are still cultures and societies, a great many of them to this day, that are still very much content with worshiping and, and uh, believing in gods and, and putting their faith uh, above all else. Yeah. But I think there are also more people today that maybe just don't do that than, than you know, ever before. So there's a, there's, you know, there's a, maybe there's, there's, there's a gradual shift to sort of the adage that like, you know, we don't need you anymore, but we're not there yet as a society as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that we've taken this conversation in this direction. And I don't think it's too deep. I think it's great. And I think like, I think, and again, I'm going to say kind of what I said before, but it's like doing the animated series has given me a new perspective on this particular element of the Star Trek universe, which mm -hmm. is this idea of gods. And it's a, it's a, I think it's important to point out Roddenberry was an atheist you yes, know, right. and figuring out how you, and I'm an atheist, although also like Scott, I grew up Jewish, um, is figuring out how do we reckon with the idea of gods and mysticism in a very science-based universe, Yeah, you know? And I think what's into what we can say, and I'm not speaking about anyone's religion and that, you know, that might be very dear and precious to you. And I'm not become, me, directing any of this at that, but in the Star Trek universe, it seems that part of what Roddenberry created is a world where there are a lot of beings who are really, really powerful, but those really, really powerful beings are different versions of us in the sense that they, they have humanity, they have desires, they have flaws, and yes. just like us, they can be like Trelane or Q that can be, you know, dangerous and uh, whimsical or have a sense of humor. They can be more evolved like the Organians. They can be, you know, caretakers and parents like the character in Bem and like Apollo and like Kukul Khan. Like they, they're different versions of us. And that's why this is actually, and that when we try to find an actual the God, like yeah. more like a Judeo-Christian God in Star Trek V, well, that's not really who that is either. Is right. that... That god, if there is one, is invisible, with the only reference being like maybe in Bread and Circuses with that's the son of God that they're talking about, that they're talking about the Christian god. But but like what's interesting to me is like, oh, it, the way gods are seen in the Star Trek universe is polytheistic. They're gods like Zeus and Thor and yeah. Odin and where they are characters who have powers but are more human in the sense they're not the overall omniscient, omnipotent creator of the universe they are far more powerful beings that we have interacted with in various times in these adventures you know yeah yeah well first of all these are all really really great points yeah. i think it's important to remember that after the original series was canceled and then roddenberry was brought back to produce what either would be a feature film a brand new tv series or even just maybe a tv movie 
the proposal that Roddenberry submitted in the early 70s was that the Enterprise finds God. And huh. uh, then it was it was rejected, you know. But then, you know, you're dealing with the whole Leger thing, and Alan Dean Foster came in to do in Thy Image. And then, of course, you know, Roddenberry got what he wanted to an extent with Star Trek V, which he, you know, was a creative consultant on. He wasn't like a producer like he was with the motion picture. But I think that maybe maybe Roddenberry was so hell-bent on doing something with the Enterprise finding God to sort of be like, you know what? It's not really God. And it's like what you were saying, Steve, like like there are powerful beings who could be seen as gods, but uh, command great power. But they're not gods. They are they are gods to primitive humans who saw the powerful beings and, and thought they were gods because they had this incredible power. But then as humanity, as the human race evolved and became powerful themselves, especially with their technology, uh, it, it all becomes more uh, with the, with looking at it with a perspective being like, oh, you know what? You're not a god after all. And even if you were, we don't we're good. We don't need you. Yeah. Well, it goes back to that Arthur C. Clarke quote of any sufficiently advanced technology would appear as magic, you know? And so, yeah, you know, Apollo looks like a god. Right. Because from our perspective, but but he has tech, you know, Trelane uses technology like they 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 all do. Back to the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, one of the things that Scott and I have complained about with the animated series has been that they try to do those Gene Kuhn jokes at the end of an episode. Oh, yeah. And frequently they misfire. The last episode, Albatross, they definitely misfired. This one totally doesn't, I think. I think this one works, which is that we're talking about these gods visiting or ancient Earth. And McCoy says, Spock, I wouldn't suppose that Vulcan has legends like those. Not legends, Doctor. Fact. Vulcan was visited by alien beings. They left much wiser. Yeah, it works. That's, a, that's a quality joke. And they also actually quote the line from Shakespeare from which the episode took its name. So how sharper than a serpent's tooth comes from King Lear, act one, scene four. And the quote is how sharper than a serpent's tooth to have a thankless child, which is fitting for this episode perfectly. It is the one and only Trek title of the animated series to come from Shakespeare and the first Trek title to be to be a Shakespeare title since All Our Yesterdays, the second to the last episode of the original series that was aired. John, as a as a lover of Shakespeare, what are your what are your feelings about the use of this quote? I think it does fit. And um, uh, I think it was Russell or David who said, like, we put it in because, you know what, it's it's Star Trek and we could be pretentious if we want to be. <laughs> Shakespeare <laughs> has been worked with Star So I was like, that's genius. Because, of course, Shakespeare has, has been used so well through Star Trek. You know, Star Trek VI, Chang uses it all the time. He's fantastic with the usage of it. So, you Party know, you love sweet sorrow. Yeah, exactly. To <laughs> be or not to be, you know, so it's, just great, <laughs> it's great stuff that you get when they use it correctly. And I think it actually works here. My only issue with the moment is once again, and I don't know if this is Shatner or Kirk. Dude, I have the same thought. Right? Kirk shutting down McCoy's. No, no, I know the line. You don't have to tell me the line. <laughs> that to me is like, oh, come on, man. Let, let him have the line for God's sake. It totally but, feels like he's stealing his line. It right. totally feels that and way. And it's ironic because throughout the whole episode is them saying we don't need this authority figure to tell us what to do. But here is Kirk 
Here is Spock and here is Bones, the, the, the three name uh, actors and characters shutting down people who are, in essence, of lower rank to them at different moments, right? The Ensign with McCoy, Kirk, uh, 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 Uhura with, um, uh, with Spock, and then Kirk a couple of times when he tells Scotty and Bones to be quiet when he's talking to Kugel Khan. And then here at the end when he, I think he shuts down Scotty who's trying, or Bones is trying to say the line and shuts him down. So it's a very interesting um, dichotomy there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Incongruency, I guess, in that. Well, and this is, it's beyond the episode. You know, like these are things where it's like, yeah, if we had a full episode, they actually could have explored all these ideas. And because one of the other ones, by the way, is that our heroes are the, are the rebellious children in this episode. Yes. Right. But in Lear, I, I don't remember if it's Goneril or Reagan or who he's talking about, but they are horrible children. And so they we're sort of pairing the quote with the, with being really ungrateful, terrible yeah. kids for our heroes, which I find. Well, interesting. well, well, King Lear was the succession of its day. hundred percent. One hundred percent. Well, we actually have some reactions. From the writers about the impact of how sharper than any serpent's tooth, Russell Bates said the episode got great reviews from fans and teachers and children, and that made me happy. David Wise later said, my hope is that we did some honor to the original Star Trek series with this episode. I think it's a good episode, a good script. I'm very proud of it. I don't say that a lot about what I've written, but I say that about this one, and I'm sure that Russell Bates is very proud of it as well. I see this episode from time to time, and I still enjoy it. And from what I understand, they got letters and um, uh, reviews from fans that and, and teachers who were showing this episode in their classrooms as a positive episode for children to look at the Native American experience and this idea of gods and, and exploring that. So, yeah, hey, my, can't ask for more than that when it's a, a, a it won an Emmy for a children's uh, a series. I, I feel like since doing this journey through the animated series, you know, we still have one more episode to go. But here I am at this stage in my life, in my 50s, mid-50s, uh, to rediscover the animated Star Trek, which was a show that I definitely watched years and years ago. Maybe there were a couple I rewatched, but not that many. Uh, a series that is often overlooked and underappreciated in the entire canon, you could call, of, of Star Trek. And realizing like, okay, yeah, a couple episodes, not that great. But for the most part, this really does rise to the level of what Star Trek means. And you know, it's certainly the voice actors in season one. You had a lot of the same writers and producers from the original series, which is a, a, a you know a badge of honor. But you know, to get to this point, to get to this episode, to ha- have a conversation like we just had based on an animated series episode, is is another testament to what makes the animated series such a worthy series to bear the name Star Trek. Uh, a series that I think is even better than some of the other shows. Not going to name which ones they are, but I have such a deeper appreciation not only for Serpent's Tooth, but for the animated series as a whole. That we are approaching the end of the animated series, and between this episode and the next one, I feel like it really did go out on a high and and stick the landing, uh, especially the next one because of uh, the the uh, the actor 
or rather the character that is in the counterclock incident. But we will we will save that conversation for another time. So here's my final thoughts, which is, first of all, this is this episode I've enjoyed. I enjoyed more than many of the previous ones. So it was a nice relief to get a really strong episode that really dealt with real Star Trek themes and ideas and the structure made sense and the animation was solid. But what I have liked even more is this conversation about that episode. Mm, mm. And that's really, for me, the real gift of Star Trek and why I think all three of us, or one of the reasons all three of us love it so much is that it has something to teach and it has something for you to think about and has something for us to discuss, to dig into. And so even though, yes, this is an episode for a Saturday morning cartoon, we still got to talk about gods and religion and parents and children and all those things. And I think that's what makes has always made Star Trek really exciting for me. Yeah, I 100% echo everything Steve said and I think that's why I I think that's why as a society we revisit Star Trek and why it will never leave our um uh pop culture mainstream. Like as soon as it came out in the 60s, there must have been a desire for more of it to come out in an animated series in the 70s. Like this is the best we can do. We can get the budget for this. We're good to do this. Fine. What happens a few years later, six years or five years later, is the Star Trek the motion picture. Then through the 80s is another heyday of Star Trek with all those movies. Then in the 90s, we get Star Trek Next Generation because people need Star Trek. And then when Star Trek, then we get it rebooted by J.J. Uh, Abrams in 2009. Yeah. And then people are like, okay, well, okay, the next two films, all right, uh, you know, people's feelings about it. And then boom, Paramount Plus comes in. And starts all over again with Star Trek Discovery, Prodigy, Lower Decks, and Strange New Worlds now, Picard. So there is a need for Star Trek in our world because of the philosophical discussions and the um, situations that are presented that Star Trek is not afraid to highlight and talk about in a progressive way. And I think that is so important for our world and so important in our lives to have a science fiction property or franchise that does this and so for me and i know look i know star wars is its thing and i get there's a lot i host the show about it there's a lot of philosophical stuff but there's just something more uh ground-based in the star trek that i think people gravitate to and rediscover generations 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 and what are we in the fifth decade or sixth decade of star trek being around and that tells you that it is an enduring property uh, that people want to to rediscover over and over again and find new ways to do. We're actually in the seventh. Seventh. There we go. Yeah. But uh, 57 years as of uh, the taping of this. And I got to say, you know, you're talking about John Star Trek leaving uh, culture and consciousness. That's not going to happen. Although it might get kicked off of Paramount Plus. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, for everyone listening, I just got to say that Star Trek Prodigy was actually a really, really, really good show Great animation, uh, definitely a series that that earned the title of being Star Trek. Absolutely unfair that not only was it canceled, but that it was removed from Paramount Plus before season two even had a chance to drop. So uh, if you are listening and you go on social media, make your voice heard to bring Star Trek Prodigy back to Paramount Plus because as of this recording of this episode, there have been 886 episodes of Star Trek produced since 1966. And by the end of this year, it'll be at almost 900 episodes after the next season of Lower Decks drops on the on the streaming service. 
Star Trek should all be at one, in one place. That is why I have Paramount Plus, is that I can watch any Star Trek series from the, the last 57 years anytime I want to, and the movies, and they are all there. And to take off one show, one, one Star Trek show, but not the others. I mean, first of all, I don't want you to take off the others, but that just seems like such a, a poor decision, and I don't agree with the reasoning, and I'm not going to get into the reasoning, but bring back Star Trek Prodigy, save Star Trek Prodigy, and and absolutely uh, uh, keep, keep on trucking. <laughs> so that's what we think of how sharper than a serpent's tooth of course we'd love to hear your thoughts on our facebook page if you do the facebook thing you can search for enterprise incidents if your thing is more twitter then it would be enter incidents and if your thing is pictures then on instagram we're enterprise incidents and if you want to subscribe to the show you can do it on apple Podcasts or spotify or stitcher or anywhere else podcasts are fine in- found including YouTube, where you can subscribe to the show there, and you can also leave your comments there. If you do happen to do Apple Podcasts, we would love a review. They really help the show. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking on the link in the show notes where you can support Enterprise Incidents for as little as 99 cents a month, as much as $9.99 a month. And if you want to reach me, you can do it SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And you could check out my other podcast with my very good friend, John Roca, The Cinephiles, where, as you mentioned, we're in the middle of Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, John, how would they find you? Uh, yeah, to, uh, you can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, The Outlaw Nation on Twitch. Uh, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says. Uh, and uh, my other podcasts, along with The Cinephiles that I do, The Hot Mike and The Geek Buddies, they're out there for you all to enjoy. Well, big thanks to John Roca for joining us and making oh, yes. an extra, extra special episode of Enterprise Incidents. And I got to say for everyone and anyone who loves to know what is going on in the world of Hollywood and entertainment and movies and TV, absolutely. John Roca's show with Jeff Snyder, the hot mic, is essential listening. They are breaking news faster than even the biggest Hollywood trades, and that is is a bold statement because they do it on a regular basis. So do listen to all of Johnny's shows, but especially the hot mic because uh, uh, they're they're the real deal. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. Make sure, like uh, Steve said, you share Enterprise Incidents on all of your social media platforms. And if you've been enjoying our deep dive of the animated series uh, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the animated series, don't forget they'll be also covered every single episode of the original series, all 80 episodes. So just scroll back on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast and go back to the original series uh, because no one has taken a look at the original Star Trek series like we did on Enterprise Incidents. Many of the episodes, we are joined by our good friend, John Roca. And meanwhile, we have just one more episode of the animated series to go, and then we are done with the animated series on Enterprise Incidents. Coming up next, we have our journey to the Counter Clock Incident, one of my favorite episodes of the animated series for many reasons. So join us here on Enterprise Incidents, and until then, keep going boldly.